Welcome to the Bakersfield Whiskey Society podcast. At the Bakersfield Whiskey Society, we know you want to be a whiskey expert. And in order to do that, you need to drink and learn about whiskey. The problem is, whiskey can be intimidating. And that often leaves you feeling confused and frustrated. Well, we're here to help take the mystery out of whiskey. To help you understand what you like and why you like it. So kick back, pour yourself a glass of something, unless you're driving. And get ready to learn what you like and why you like it. This is the Bakersfield Whiskey Society Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Bakersfield Whiskey Society Whiskey Secrets Podcast. And you are going on a trip with us today. We are going to travel to Japan. And I am so excited because by the time we finish today, you're going to know more about the world of rice whiskey and what's going on in this movement. You're going to have an understanding of what rice whiskey is and why it matters. Why is it so important today? And there's a great reason it does matter. But more importantly, you're going to feel excited the next time you walk into your favorite store and you see some rice whiskeys there sitting there because you're going to have that understanding and that history of what's going on. And our guest today is Chris Uday, Vice President of Impex Beverage, affectionately known as the uh, Whiskey Redhead. Chris, welcome to the show. Hello. How's everyone doing? <laughs> Thank you for having me. Oh, man. It's such a thrill to, to sit down and uh, geek about whiskey with you. And uh, so for people who don't know you, tell us a little bit about how you got started in the industry. So my history in the booze industry in general is, is very long and serendipitous, I guess is the way to, to go about it. I first started I mean, I started working doors at bars the day I turned 21. I used to go into bars before I was 21 with fake IDs and whatnot. And, you know, I've, I've been in it since, since forever, I suppose. But the day I turned 21, I started working at a bar. Within a year, I was behind the bar bartending, not really doing any type of real cocktails like what you guys might know today, more like a drink slinger, gin and tonics, vodka tonics, PBRs, hundreds of them a night. And then, um, and then I got out of it a little bit. And really what happened was... I was going to move to two different cities. One was going to be, I was either going to New York or I was going to LA because I had couches in both to stay in and I had never been to LA. So I, I went out to visit my friend and he, he couldn't get off work that day and he worked at a liquor store and he was the buyer at a liquor store. And these guys came in to taste him on whiskey. And because I was a friend with the buyer, I got to try it as well. And I asked them so many questions that they said, have you ever thought about being on the sales side of it? And I said, well, you know, it's, it's funny you should say that because I am in between jobs right now. And so I'm, now I had a, they offered me a job to come work with them. They offered me interviews at least, which I passed. And, and I had moved so many boxes that day with my buddy at the store. The owner of the liquor store offered me a job as well. So I had two jobs in account. So I moved to LA and got into the whiskey industry. And then from there, it kind of took off because this is in 2007. This is, you know, for you youngins out there, it's a long time ago now. And it was before the whiskey boom had happened. And immediately after we started, we did a tasting and the speaker of the tasting was unable to show up. And the person that tried to replace him at the tasting didn't know a lot about whiskey. And it was a very embarrassing evening for, for everyone involved. And so I promised myself I'd never let that happen again. Went, got up off my lazy butt, started really studying about whiskey and Within a few years, felt like I got more comfortable with it, started teaching more classes, and then some, a couple of bloggers wrote about me, and, and then a, a bar that I was consulting for got named Best Whiskey Bar West of the Mississippi. And then uh, in 2016, LA Magazine named me the first voice of whiskey for Los Angeles, which I still have a framed, I have a framed uh, version of that magazine that you gave me. Thank you very much. Hey. And that's kind of how I got in. That's kind of how I got into whiskey. 
Very cool. Well, yeah. And this journey has certainly taken you all over the world. And recently it's brought you to Japan and doing some rice whiskey. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of that evolution for you? Yeah. So in 2010, I wanted to buy a bunch of bourbon barrels and it was before bourbon had really kicked off and I didn't have any money to do it. And I went to a couple of people to do it and I went to my bosses to do it. And they said that they were interested in pursuing other interests in that time. So, so it wasn't going to happen. And then bourbon blew up. And then uh, I saw Japanese whiskey on the horizon, if that makes sense. My wife's, for people who don't know, my wife's from Japan. She's from the south of Japan. And we go there every year to visit family. And I saw Japanese whiskey on the horizon of being a very, um, an undiscovered category kind of. And that, I saw it on the horizon and I, I wanted to go and explore that a little bit more. And it, it wasn't quite playing out. But what did happen was I had a friend of mine who was in the, the sake import business. He brought me a cast sample from a few distilleries in the South that was stuff that they weren't allowed to bottle for legal reasons. And so um, I asked him what he was going to do with it. He said he didn't have any plans with it. And since it was not that far away from where my wife is from, our next trip over there, she and I went down there to go meet with them. And not only did they have just a couple of casks, there were hundreds and hundreds of casks of this stuff that was just absolutely stunning and new oak and ex brandy cask and sherry cask that was basically um, distillate made from rice that, that couldn't be bottled in Japan because of some laws that were passed in the 1980s. We can talk about that, that later if you want. But I realized that we probably could bottle them as whiskey for export market because of the way the laws are structured in the U.S. And it took us two years to negotiate the deals and to kind of put it all together. But the two distilleries are Oishi and Fukano, and we um, were given permission by the distilleries to bottle them as whiskey for export market. And that's kind of how I got into that. And so I took it to my boss at the time and said, hey, I've I've got this this project that I'd really like to be partners on. And he said, yeah, sure, go for it. Rest is kind of history from there. So, so what was going through your mind when you when you were first there, when you first tasted this, when, when you saw the, these casks of all that distillate there? What, what was going through your head at that moment? Well, what was going through my head was simply, how does nobody know about this? And how am I going to, well, like, it was purely selfish. It was like, how can I have all this? I, I want all this. This is awesome. This is, this is a dream come true. I've only ever bought bottles. I want to try to buy casks. How come nobody knows about this? How can we get this in, out to the mm-hmm. people? And what was it that, that kind of stood out to you? What, what made it special? What made it a little bit different and kind of got you excited about it? That's a really good question. And really, it has to do with my entire career in whiskey from the 2007 point on. When I used to bartend, again, I was just slinging drinks. I wasn't paying attention to any of the, what I was putting into my belly. I wasn't paying, really paying attention to what I was serving other people. A little bit of a high sugar content cocktail here and there, but not really focusing on the distillate itself. And when I moved to LA and I got into really studying about whiskey and I realized how wide the flavors of whiskey could range and how, how versatile it could be just as a distillate itself, I, I completely fell in love with it. And so when you fast forward, I guess at that point, it's six or seven years when we discovered these casks, those casks had some of those same some of that same brilliance, like the distillate itself was just remarkable. It was, it was just incredible juice. And so we wanted to, I didn't have a choice. I was emotionally attached to it out of the gate. I had to, I had to find a way to make it work. Interesting. And now these are rice whiskeys, right? And what are the typical grains that the people usually distill whiskey from? Ah, so whiskey, it depends on where you're from, right? So historically, if you're drinking single malt scotch, you're drinking a whiskey that is made from 100% malted barley yeast and water, and that's it, and distilled in a copper pot still. 
if you're drinking blended scotch whiskey, it might have, it's still going to have some single malt in it, but it's probably going to also have some maybe corn distillate or maybe some rye distillate mixed in as well, or even unmalted barley distillate where, the, where they've made it in a column still and, and they kind of mix all that together. If you're drinking bourbon, then you're drinking a spirit, a whiskey that is predominantly made from corn. By law, bourbon has to be made. The dominant grain in bourbon must be corn at least over 50%. If you're drinking rye whiskey, it's going to be rye whiskey. And so there's been a few examples of bourbons having some rice in them. There's been a few examples of uh, Japanese whiskeys having some rice in them. There's been a few examples of... Well, there's been, there's been, a, well, and then of course there's rice whiskey, which is made hundred percent from rice. So if you really think about it, it's, well, let's take it back a step, right? So let's just think about whiskey as an umbrella term. And whiskey is a distilled spirit made from grain and aged in oak casks. And if you think about it, just like you think about the word wine, you've got a fermented beverage made from grapes and you have the different children of wine. You have Merlot, Cabernet, Chardonnay, you know, Pinot Grigio. And whiskey is kind of the same thing. So we have bourbon and scotch and we have Irish and we have Canadian, but there, there hasn't been a rice whiskey baby yet of that umbrella. And so that's how it differs is you want to. Um, well, and even up until like recently, this. right, the Japanese have made great whiskey, but they've been the grain whiskeys. They've been the, the barley and, and right. And, and that's what you've seen over there. You haven't necessarily seen a, a movement towards using what would be almost the indigenous grain in the area, which is rice. Yeah, so, so if that goes into kind of the history of, of Japanese whiskey, and we can certainly touch on that. So if you look at the history of distillation between Scotland and the history of distillation in Japan, the first written record of whiskey is in 1494. And Japan starts distilling in the mid-1500s. Now, at this time, those two countries are not trading with each other. Japan is actually a closed nation until, I think it's 1853, 1854. So you have, you have hundreds of years of isolation between the two with this technology being cultivated by the two of them. So it makes sense that the Japanese will not be using the word whiskey because there's no trade of, there's no commerce, there's no trade of ideas between them and Scotland. Because the word whiskey, it's not like the word whiskey came with, with the distillation process. The word whiskey evolved from the word ushkaba, meaning water of life, which is an old Gaelic word. If, if you go pre-ushkaba, then you would call it Aquavite, and it's, you know, it's, it's coming out of Italy and kind of making its way up through there. So when you think about it like that, it makes sense that they wouldn't share the same vocabulary. So the reason why you don't have whiskey being made from rice in Japan is because when the word is introduced, it doesn't happen until the first license isn't issued until 1919. And it's not before that, that a guy named Takatsuru-san goes over to Scotland to study the Scottish style of making distillate, ergo whiskey. And he brings that technology back with him to Japan to implement it in Japan. And, and in Scotland, because they grow barley, they're going to be using malted barley over there. And because they're using the copper pot stills, he's going to bring that technology back with him into Japan. And therefore, he's going to make whiskey from barley. And so as the word whiskey develops in Japan, it develops with that Scottish style in mind where they predominantly use barley. Now, they would mix other grains into it. They would mix neutral grain spirit. They would they would source whiskey from other countries and mix it in there. They might even make it from corn. But that's the evolution of the word whiskey in Japan. Is it's, it's affiliated with a very specific technology that was taken from Scotland in the, really in the early 1900s. Whereas if you look at the word whiskey in America, 
we brought that over as immigrants into America and we would have used the native grains that we found in America to be able to make whiskey. And sometimes if we found barley, we would have used it. But if you landed in Pennsylvania, you were probably making rye whiskey because that's what you could grow there. And if you're in Kentucky, you had a lot of corn whiskey going on. Or if you're in um, Indiana, you would have a lot of corn whiskey going on. So that's why like American whiskeys would use corns and rye. Barley would use uh, single malt or I'm sorry, Scotland would use barley. And that's why Japan used barley as well. It just kind of skipped it because it wasn't the technology being brought over. It wasn't distillation being brought over with the immigrants. It was that style of distillation being brought over because distillation in the country predates all that by hundreds of years. And that's what they were using to, to use the rice grain. Does it make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I may have to go back and listen to it again, but a lot of it does. And so, right, and now we've got these rice whiskeys starting to come out of Japan. Well, what does the production method of making a rice whiskey look like? And how does it kind of differ? And then maybe we can start getting into some of the, the flavor profiles. And where I really want to end up is, why does any of this matter at all, right? Why does it matter? And, but, but right now, let's just kind of dive in and talk a little bit about the production method of the rice whiskey. So with the production method of rice whiskey, it's more akin to the native style of distillation that they were doing in Japan. So with the production of rice whiskey, I'll tell you what I'll do. Is it okay if I share my screen with you oh, yeah, for just a minute? That would be fantastic. Got a lot of pictures here. So what I want to show you guys is historically when you produce whiskey, in Scotland or when you produce whiskey in the United States, you'll take your grain and you'll, you'll cook it. Or if you're doing a single malt whiskey, you'll, you'll malt the barley and then you'll grind up the barley into a grist. You'll add water, yeast to it, let the fermentation take place, and then you'll run it through a double distillation or a two and a half times distillation or a column stone. Historical distillation in Japan is fundamentally different. When you're making a whiskey from rice, what you'll do is you'll start with steamed rice and you'll sprinkle koji onto it. And what koji is, for lack of a better word, it is basically a mold. And before everyone starts to freak out about having consumed a mold, I'll put it to you this way. If you've ever eaten sushi, you've eaten koji. It's used to make miso soup, soy sauce. It's used to make a, a lot of different cuisines. Shio miso, all like a, a lot of Asian food uses miso because what it does is it provides enzymes. It, it provides amylase is what it provides. It provides en enzymes that help with digestion and it helps with getting umami on the food and getting like a more rich flavor. And so what they'll do is they'll take koji and they'll sprinkle it with like three main styles. Sake uses a yellow koji. Potato shochu will use a, a black koji. And then the rice whiskeys will use a white koji. And they'll sprinkle this koji onto a grain of rice. And they'll let it sit for 40 hours in a controlled environment. And that'll cause the, the koji to sprout on the rice and really what it's, again, what it's doing is giving the, alpha, is giving the amylase. So when you malt barley, you're, you're doing the same thing. When you malt barley to make Scott, single malt scotch whiskey, not only are you converting the starches into sugar in the barley as you're malting it, but you're providing an enzyme called alpha amylase that helps the yeast to be able to feed off the barley and stay as a healthy yeast. Well, that's what this koji is doing to the rice. And the way that that works out is you sprinkle it on, you leave it for 40 hours, and then you have what's called koji rice. You'll then take that koji rice, put it into in-ground pots that are clay pots in the ground, and you'll pitch yeast and you'll pitch water to it as well. And you'll let that fermentation take hold and take place over the next seven days. From there, you'll take that, that it's now called moromi or your primary fermentation. And you'll move that over into a secondary fermentation tank where you'll add more steamed rice and water. And that's gonna sit for another 14 days. And this, the moromi and the new steamed rice in the water will all interact. The yeast will continue to propagate and then it will consume the sugars of the rice. 
um, the byproduct will be the ethanol, which is what we will eventually, what eventually makes the whiskey. So after 14 days, you're at about a 16 to 18% alcohol by volume. You'll move that over into your still where you'll do a single distillation and it comes up the other side as your basically unaged whiskey or your distillate. From there, it'll be moved over into an oak cast for maturation. So it's kind of the same thing as regular distillation. Like the distillation is the same. You still have a, you still have a fermentation that's going on, but a lot of fermentation times in Scotland or in America will be somewhere like 48, 60 hours. Some people will push it and really do 36 hours. This is much longer. This is well over 21 days of fermentation time to get that final product that's going to be distilled. And it's different than whiskey in that, and one of the ways it changes, it's different than whiskey in that with whiskey, you tend to have cuts. You have heads and tails or four shots and faints. A lot of people hear about that. A lot of people hear about, you know, drinking bootleg gins and the methanol and it causes people to go blind and die. Well, those are the four shots. That's the methanol is the first part that comes off the still. With the rice whiskeys, they actually don't have that. The koji interacts with the rice in such a way it removes all the methanol. It removes all the off conagers. They're actually able to use stainless steel stills. They don't even need copper stills to pull off any off flavors. They can use a stainless steel still and distill it. And the first part that comes off the still is drinkable. And so it's, it's just a different style of distill, if that makes sense. It's lighter, it's more floral, and it's an expansion of the pie. Wow. Well, and that's what I was going to ask you is what is that distill like when it's first coming off? You said kind of lighter and a so little bit. Make it, yeah, you can make it two ways. So, so this is where it gets, this is where it also gets a little crazy, right? So I'll show you another slide. Get ready, guys. If you're used to, if you're used to seeing whiskey stills, this isn't going to look like the whiskey, whiskey stills you're used to seeing. So again, remember this technology dates back to the 1500s. So I'm going to show you one from 1872 and I'm going to show you one from today. So if you drink mezcal, this is going to look a lot more like that style. So historically, the way they used to do it is they would have a, maybe an iron pot and then they'd have a way to capture the vapor on top. And this would be a steel or an iron or steel bowl that would have um, cold water in it, which would cause this vapor to go up and recondense back down where it would be put into the bamboo and sent out the side where it was collected to be consumed. Nowadays, it looks like this. And again, you'll notice this is a stainless steel still. In Scotland, when you make single malt whiskey, by law, you have to use copper pot stills. And they like copper pot stills because the copper, again, pulls off the, the off conagers, the off flavors. But because the ferment of the rice whiskeys is so clean, they don't need that copper. And the way that this still works is the same, but a little bit different. It can be run two ways. The first way is like a regular pot still. You turn it on, your vapor goes up, it's recondensed back down, and then it's collected down here. And it's, it's like a standard style, and they call that regular pressure. They can also do a reduced pressure style of distillation where they have a pump that they can turn on and it creates a vacuum on the inside of the still and it lowers the vaporization point of the ethanol. So you don't have to heat the still so much to get the ethanol to vaporize off of the solution. And that's going to give you a lighter, more floral style spirit. So think of it as it's kind of like a, it's almost like a perfume style distillation where mm. it's going to have a very mild body to it. It's still going to carry quite a bit of umami because that's just the, that's the nature of koji interacting with the yeast and the rice. But it's also going to carry a, a very floral compound to it. That's, that's um, like a, it could be fruity. It can be flowery. It can be all different styles. It can just be light and sweet. It can be powdered sugar. It can be all these different flavors that, that it can interact when the cask at the end of the day is going to be what you have. But really, it's just more aromatic style of distillate. And that's kind of the way it's different than standard distillation of whiskeys. Whereas in a standard distillation of whiskey, you're basically making a, 
you know, you're making a, a pretty gnarly beast coming off of the still that's going to sit in an oak cask and mellow out over time. And the end product is going to be this beautiful final distillate. Whereas with the rice whiskey style of distillation, you're making it both so that it can be consumed without cask or that you can put it into a cask and let it sit for many years. It's up to you. Interesting. Now, how much does the, the design of the still actually factor into the, the flavor of the distillate? Because Scotland, they like to talk a lot about their stills and how it adds. And so within the Japanese and the rice whiskeys, does that play a huge role? It doesn't. They, they don't talk about that so much as they do. The, the big things for them are what type of rice is used. They only use locally grown rice. It, Oisan is one of our producers, and he actually grows 30% of the rice that he uses in the whiskey. And the other 70% is all sourced from 20 local farmers around the distillery. So, so they believe in this, the type of rice that's used, where it's grown. They believe in the yeast, which I think there's only five different types of yeast that they'll use. They 100% believe in the way the koji interacts with both of those because it's going to give different flavors as well. And then finally, they believe in the temperature of the fermentation, the time it takes to distill. So both organizations, both Fukano and Oishi, will actually only distill about eight months out of the year. They won't distill in the summer months because they feel it's too hot and it causes the ferment to take on different properties that they don't necessarily think is beneficial to the end product. So they'll shut down. They'll go back to the fields and work on the work in the rice fields and farm. Oh, so it's, uh, they'll only distill in the in the colder months where they can have where they have a, a colder ferment where it's colder outside to keep the fermentation levels, uh, fermentation temperatures down to give them the better flavors they want. Obviously, the, the next part of the production method, I, I guess, is going to be talking about the, the barrels. And, and what are you aging these rice whiskeys in? And what have you found works well? And maybe what doesn't work so well? This is kind of the brave new world, right? Because it's a newer category. So we're still experimenting. Historically, Oishi whiskey has used brandy casks and sherry butts to mature their whiskeys in. And Fukano whiskey has used a combination of new oak and some red wine casks. Recently, both distilleries are kind of expanding out, or Fukano has also used some sherry casks as well. Recently, both distilleries are expanding out into experimentation of other types of casks. So Oisan currently has, I'll talk about Oisan, currently in his warehouse, I know he has Mizunara casks, Sakura casks, Port casks, Madeira cask, Muscatel cask. Banyuls cask, which is a French fortified wine for anyone who doesn't know. It's, it's kind of like French port. New oak casks, 75-year-old sherry casks, so they held sherry in them for 75 years. 12-year-old sherry casks, so they held sherry in them for 12 years. He won't buy anything. He hasn't bought any cask that only had sherry in it for one year, which is something else that's going on in Scotland right now. Maybe when you talk to a cooper, you guys can deep dive deep into that. Refill oak casks, there are... Trying to think of what else there are. Oh, Isla cast. That's that's one that we've recently been doing is uh taking barrels from Isla and putting and putting their whiskeys in it and finishing them off for two years so that they can pick up some of the Isla profile and have a nice smoky flavor to them while still maintaining umami and like a toasted marshmallow quality to them. Right. So, so all different there's a lot of experimentation going on in this and right and you mentioned it a couple times right expanding the pie being a brave new world and so right as you're experimenting do you have a story you can share of maybe one of the experiments that didn't go so well and in some of the lessons that you learned from that yeah so, so well it's all relative right one man's trash is another man's treasure i can tell you about a couple that went really well yeah so i'll tell you about a couple that went really well so we recently 
actually today, ironically enough, it just came into my warehouse today. The container landed, but we just did an 11 year old uh, Mizunara cast expression from Oishi where it sat in brandy barrels for nine years. And then we put it into brand new Mizunara oak casks for two years. And the Mizunara oak is. What's Mizunara? So Mizunara is an oak that grows in the north of Japan in Hokkaido. They are very old trees and they're very, they're odd shaped trees. And making a Mizunara cask is very difficult because of where they grow. They have to be very good at expelling water. So Mizunara casks tend to leak. So when you go to make a Mizunara cast, you typically build it three times. You build it the first time and you put a pressure test on it and then you see where it's shooting out water from all these different staves. And then you'll mark those staves. You'll take the cask apart. You'll put it back together, replacing those staves. You'll do it a second time and you'll see where it's shooting out water. And typically by the third time, you've managed to get the right amount of wood to where it's not going to leak anymore. So they tend to be quite expensive. The cooperage that Oyson gets his Mizunara cast from can only make about 30 a month at maximum. So that's one a day for a company to be able to make those casts. So you can, you can imagine how laborious it is to, to create one of those. But the flavors you get from it are super unique because with Mizunara cast, you get flavors like sandalwood. You get a softer style, cedar style aroma and flavor to the whiskey, which is, it's almost like stepping into a village in Japan. You'll, it's, it carries the provenance of the country. Another type of cast that they'll use, that's, that's just one type of cast that, that, that they're using over there. And it's kind of become fashion now for a few Scots whiskey distillers use Mizunara. There's some cognac distillers using Mizunara. There's some American distillers using Mizunara because as, as people have realized, it's, it's become a, a highly coveted oak for, um, for maturing whiskey. And because of the sandalwood properties it gives it, because of this neat balance, this neat, the, the neat aromatics that it, it gives to the whiskeys that's completely unique into its own. Another type of cast they're using over there that's native to Japan is they're using, um, we, in Japan, you call it sakura, but in English that translates to cherry blossoms. So you know when you go to the parks in the spring and the cherry blossoms are blooming, and they're usually in America, they're these real scrawny looking trees, not very big. When in Japan, they get to be quite large and they grow really well over there. So they'll take 40-year-old sakura trees and harvest those and they'll make uh, cherry blossom casks out of it. And that's another unique flavor that, that imparts into whiskey. And there's really no way to, I don't know how to describe that flavor to someone. Mizunara is very easy. You say sandalwood. Sherry cask is very easy. You say dark dried fruits, figs, dates, unsmoked pipe tobacco. Bourbon cask, you say honey and vanilla. With the sacrada cask, it's its own unique beast. And you really can't describe what it is. But if you've had it, you know what it is. So, so the way you describe it is you go, oh, it's got sakura cask influence or cherry blossom cask influence. And someone else who's had it goes, I know exactly what you mean. So the, the, that's, that's what those type of casks can impart to the whiskeys. The other casks are, again, because the distillate is so floral and so soft, what's really been unique about the cask experimentations is that the distillate is very amenable to taking on the characteristics of the cask quite quickly. Whereas with bourbon, you really need a few years for bourbon to interact with new oak you know, new oak is a very powerful influence on booze and you, and new make bourbon is a very powerful distillate. You really need a few years for them to butt heads to turn into something wonderful and elegant with the rice whiskeys, because they start out of the gate so soft and because they carry the umami, you're able to stick them in cask and the umami will carry through and the aromatics of the, the whiskey will carry through as well, but they'll pick up the flavors of the cask quite quickly. And again, one other thing I think I failed to mention in the production side is in bourbon, you typically go in the barrel at 125 proof. 
In Scotch whiskey, you'll typically go into the barrel at 133 proof. Now, there's always exceptions to the rule. But in, um, with the rice whiskeys, they go in the barrel anywhere from really about 88 to 90 proof. So much lower. And what you get from that is you get um, a higher percentage of water. So you get more dissolving of sugars because sugar dissolves into water, whereas bitter flavors and tannins dissolve into alcohol. So you get a higher content of sugar dissolving out of the oak and into the distillate. So it just kind of fundamentally changes the way the, the whiskeys interact with the oak casks in, in a pleasant way. Like it's just, again, an expansion of the pie. You're not going to out bourbon bourbon. You're not going to out scotch scotch. So let them be what they are because they're awesome whiskeys. I love them. But this is a new set, a new segment of flavor within whiskey. And it's quite nice. Yeah. Well, right. I, I mean, I, I don't know if you're familiar. There's a book where they talk about red oceans and blue oceans. And you can go and you can try to compete with everyone else or you can carve out your own category. And I mean, that's really what we see happening in some of these world whiskey categories is people are establishing their own blue ocean because it's something completely different that no one else has done yet. I'm assuming everyone can see your background, right? Mm-hmm. So if you just take a look at your, if you take a look at what's behind you there, you can see if there was meant to be one whiskey, that picture would be pretty bare, right? Like all of those whiskeys are wonderful and all of them carry their own unique blue ocean, I guess, their own little style of blue, or the, I guess it wouldn't be an ocean because a lot of those are the same category. So maybe they're blue ponds. And I think that's, that's dead on, like go, find your own blue ocean. And this is just going to make that shelf. Like next time you host someone, instead of having one, two, three shelves behind you, you're going to have seven shelves behind you. I hope. <laughs> and I love that, right? It's an expansion of the pie. It's not shrinking the pie. It literally is expanding what's out there and the flavor profiles and the things that, you know, you're able to, to drink and enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, you don't, you know, steak is awesome, but you can't eat steak every day. It'll kill you. And pizza is awesome, but you don't want to eat pizza every day because you'll get too big. Exactly. And, Sometimes you want, you want sushi. Sometimes, sometimes you just want to just change what the diet is. And that's what an expansion of the pie is good for. So we can, I view it the same. So I view the rice whiskey category the same as the IPA category back in the 1990s, right? If you're older like I am, you remember going into a bar, they would have Bud, Bud Light, Coors, Coors Light, MGD. And if it was a really fancy place, they might have uh, Red Hook or Amberbach. And then Sierra Nevada came in and it kind of changed everyone's perspective on what beer really could be. So we hope that this is kind of the same thing where it's like, you know, all the other beers are great, but we're like, all the other flavors are great. We're just, just adding one more tap handle that you can enjoy should you choose to do so. Yeah. And now you've had the privilege of being involved with two main distilleries so far, right? Oishi and Fukano. And talk a little bit about kind of your involvement there and, and maybe give us just a real high level overview of kind of the, the difference between the two distilleries. So the distilleries are, they're both in the same prefecture of Kumamoto. It's in the south of Japan. You know what? I'll show you, I'll show you guys another fun slide if you want to see it, because this is, um, let me get to it first. But they're, they're friends, right? They're, they're, they're not too far away from each other. And Fukano dates back to 1823. Oishi dates back to 1872. So again, both distilleries predate to that 1850s. Well, well Oisan comes a little bit later, but they go back to right around that time before there's trade between Scotland and Japan. But here, let me show you this slide because this is the good slide. And it's fun, right? So if you have Japan on the right here and you have the different islands, let's see if I've got one more picture of Japan. I do. So here's a picture of Japan. And in the north, you have Hokkaido. And this is where those, those uh, Mizunara cats grow. And this is Honshu. This is the main island where everyone kind of knows. You have Tokyo, you have Osaka, 
Like this is, this is the main island of Japan that people kind of relate to. And then this is Kyushu. This is down in the south. And down through here and over through here is where distillation was first introduced in Japan. And right here in Kyushu, you have this state called Kumamoto. And if we zoom out, we look at it from a latitude standpoint, it's about the same as North Georgia, Tennessee. So you get, if, if, any, if anyone listening is from that region, it's the exact same flora, fauna, temperatures, everything. Very hot and muggy in the summer. In the wintertime, you might get a little bit of snow, but it gets very cold and dry. And both distilleries are located there. And so both of them share this unique profile of having casts that are kind of aging the same style that bourbon casts were aged, where they expand and contract quite a lot. Now, where they differ is, is simply in the style of yeast that they'll use in their own production style. Whereas Oisan, he's, he's located in a village of about 2,500 people. There's almost, there's almost nobody there. And he'll use water from the Mizukami Muda, which is the Mizukami River. And he'll, um, he'll grow a lot of his own rice. And, and, and that'll, that'll take on different profiles of the whiskey than what Fukano-san will do down in Hideyoshi. Hideyoshi is also a small village of about 30,000. But his water source, I think, is a spring a freshwater spring that's located by the distillery that's kind of fed by the Mizukami Muda. So two different water sources and they'll use different style. They'll, they'll use the same style of rice, but it'll be produced by different farmers. And even within that 25 miles, you'll get a difference in the style. And then they'll use different yeast and different casts. Fukano, again, typically red wine or, or new oak, used oak and sherry, whereas Oisan is always branding a sherry and then finished in some type of other cask if it's one of the cask finishes. Again, it's a long-winded answer to a very simple question, but there's not that much difference in the production of the two. However, with their signature, they get different flavor profiles, if that makes sense. Just like with whiskeys from Speyside or just like with bourbons from Kentucky, they all kind of make it the same way. It's just that little signature that Stiller puts on. It gives it a little bit of a, of a different style. And the Fucanos tend to be a little bit more, um, they tend to have a little bit heavier oak style to them, a little bit more spirit-driven, where these, whereas the Oishi style tends to have a little bit of a, a higher um, aromatic content and have a little bit less influence to them. Right. So, so someone's walking through the store and they, they see some bottles of Oishi or Fukano there and they want to pick one up. Where's a good starting point and how would you guide them to pick one? I would say go to... Aside from buy them all, which is what I do. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just kind of read what's on the label, right? I think we've, we've been pretty transparent with what's in the cask on... It depends. With the Fukano stuff, we usually say, if it's Fukano, I don't think we necessarily always say what type of cask it was in. But if you want something that's more of like a bourbon style, a lot more oaky, then I would recommend they get the 14-year or the 10-year, or they find one of these They find one of these black bottles. These are the old original ones. Um, these, were, these were heavy in oak. If they, want to, if they want something more with a sherry influence, they could do, like this is the OEC sherry cask. They could, they could pick up one of those. You can see the tan label, tan with reddish sherry, whereas blue is going to be brandy. With the oysters, we, we now, there's a few blue labels out there that are brandy casts where we couldn't actually say X brandy barrel on it because there was a time period where we had to wait to reapply with the TTB to be able to actually say what type of cask it was in. And that just had to do with, that just had to do with internal things at the TTB and that's now been fixed. So now with the oysters stuff, we'll always say what type of cask it's in. But with the Fukano stuff, if you want, if you want less of an oak profile, go for a white label. If you want more of an oak profile, go for any of the colored labels. Okay. And, and so you guys know, like, if you guys wanted to see, like, this is a great, this is a Fukano wine cask, and uh, this is what it looks like when it comes straight from the barrel, and this is what's not allowed to be sold in Japan. This is illegal. Because oh. in Japan, the license only allows them to make shochu, and shochu by law has to have a certain clarity to it. It, has, it cannot be 
like really the the color of the wall behind me is almost too dark to be bottled as shochu. So this is way prohibido, you know, but this is what it looks like when it comes from the cast. This is a Fukano red wine case. That's just, that's beautiful, Chris. (laughs) It's got the right color to me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like, you can imagine that's flavor, right? When, when whiskey is nothing more than a barrel aged cocktail, bourbon, scotch, any of them. So, so if you were to strip all this out, I mean, you'd still have really great distillate, but I mean, that's, that's going to have some fun. But we've talked a little bit about the history of what's going on with rice whiskey. We've talked a little bit about what's going on right now with white rice whiskey. Where do you see it going? Right. What is, what does the future look like? Well, who knows? I hope that I hope that it continues to experiment and expand. I can tell you that you know I've got another bottle here. There is now a distillery down in Florida doing a rice whiskey. Oh, this was just sent to me in the mail the other day. Oh, fun! It's 100% rice grain, the Whisper whiskey. Yeah, so it looks like it's. I haven't. Even, I just opened Burlock and Barrel Distillers down in Florida are doing one. There was a company out in Brooklyn doing one. You have Vin in Oregon doing rice whiskeys. San Diego Distillery down in San Diego made a whiskey from rice. And what's going to be unique about all of them is um, I don't think these guys use the Koji method. And I know San Diego Distillery doesn't use the Koji method. So they're going to use a different fermentation style. They're also going to be using different rice grains than what Oishi and Fukan are going to use. So I think the future is going to be one of innovation, experimentation. Some things are really going to work and knock it out of the park. Some things might just not work out as well, but that's like with anything. I think we might see an awareness of, of people starting to ask, well, all right, it's made from rice. What type of rice is it made with? Is it made with long grain rice, short grain rice? Is it made with a brown rice versus, a, versus like a heavily milled white rice? I think all those questions are coming to it. And I hope that it'll just be it'll just be like with everything else where people go get to have a, a good shot of whiskey and they're like, well, what you want, you want a bourbon, you want a rye, you want a scotch, you want a rice. Like that would be, that would be my dream is to one day for, for, for that type of acceptance and that type of awareness where someone goes, you know what, today I want a rice whiskey. Tomorrow I'm going to have a bourbon and then we'll see today tomorrow. And then Friday I'll have a scotch. And so we're, they can kind of mix it up that way. That would be, that would be my dream. Oh, neat. Well, Ray, I think that's so, you know, so important for you to remember and everyone listening to remember is, you know, you might think everything that could be done in whiskey has been done, but that's so far from the truth. And there's still innovation taking place. There's still experimentation taking place, right? And we are in, there, there's an untapped frontier. And I think the future, we're going to need way more shelves in our bars is what I think we're going to need. And that's a good thing. Yeah, I think so too. Like you, we, we have, you know, in Scotland, they're starting to mess around with mezcal barrels and tequila barrels. And in America, you've got, you've got people using micro casks and really big casks. And then you've got people using oak chips. And, and it, it all, like, I personally think that if you don't have innovation, then you stagnate and you don't improve upon what can be offered out there. And, I, and I'm very grateful for guys like you that are really kind of stepping up the game and helping to make what we're doing aware to more people. And guys like the people in your, or people like guys and gals, like the people in your club that are willing to try new things and experiment and just, just to see where it can go. Because we all have email now, we have the internet, we can research things, we can see what we like and we don't have to be locked into one thing. So it's no longer the days of, you know, nothing against Crown Royal, but granddad drinks Crown Royal black velvet, depending on his income. And that's just what it is. And and now, now like you drink this today, drink that tomorrow, drink it. Yeah. It's going to be fun. I, I like it. 
I agree with you. Great. And, that, that, and that's so much of the, the mission of the Bakersfield Whiskey Society is to help people know what you like and why you like it and, and to give you access to, to taste a whole bunch of stuff all at once without having to go buy it all yourself and really bring that sampling. And in fact, we're doing a masterclass tomorrow night with you and we're going to travel the world. I mean, we're literally going to do social distancing world traveling and we're going to go to Belgium and we're going to go to Japan and we're going to even spend a little time in Scotland and really, you know, compare and contrast the flavors and we've got a rice whiskey in the lineup too and that's what makes it so much fun is we do get to, to travel the world hear those stories and thank you for for the innovation that, that you're bringing to the industry also chris <laughs> such kind words so so yeah i'm excited about tomorrow's tasting as well i don't want to talk about it too much today because i want people that go to it tomorrow to have everything new but it, there's some really cool whiskeys in that tasting for sure it'll be a lot of fun so any any closing or final thoughts no just you know drink and be merry and thank you for spending your time with me and thank you for having me and, and i hope you guys all you know whatever you have in your glass you're absolutely in love with because if you're not don't go get something else and put it in your glass <laughs> well said well hey thank you for being an amazing guest and uh thank you our listeners for tuning in to another great episode of the bakersfield whiskey society podcast and even listen to whiskey secrets get out there and put something great in your glass and like chris said if you don't like it find something else cheers everyone You've been listening to the Bakersfield Whiskey Society podcast. We take you behind the tastings and beyond the label into the story of the people, the places, and the process that make whiskey what it is. For more beyond the podcast and to hang with the community, learn, and to hang with friends, attend a live tasting. You'll love it. Visit us at bakersfieldwhiskeysociety.com. We can't wait to have you in the family. So till next time, sit back, pour a good one, enjoy, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. We enjoyed it.